Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Anthony Scaramucci, affectionately known as The Mooch. Anthony is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital. In this conversation, we get Anthony's take on bouncing back from failures and setbacks. It is packed full of advice for young people. We also talk about his big bet on Bitcoin and why he thinks Bitcoin is dirt cheap. And we get his thoughts on Trump and more. This is a must listen to episode. I hope you enjoy it. Anthony Scaramucci, founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital. It is so great to see you again and welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be on. Thank you, Jewel. And I, I see the best business show sticker. Congratulations on everything you're doing with the pomp. Uh, and please say hello to the pomp brothers for me. I certainly will. Two of my uh, favorite Anthony's. Well, um, I want to kick things off just kind of getting um, folks to hear more of your personal story and I read uh, two of your books and one of them was Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole. And I felt like that really helped me get to know you better. And uh, one of the things I noticed in there is that, Anthony, you are an incredibly generous tipper and you treat service workers with respect. And I think that says a lot about you and your character and your upbringing. So I was wondering if you could kind of share with the folks, um, you know, your kind of philosophy and approach to life and a bit about your own uh, upbringing. Well, I think I told a story in that book about Joaquin. If, uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's what you're referring to. I'll, I'll tell that story quickly. I When I started my second company, I was uh, going to the Harvard Club. I was getting uh, meals there and trying to take care of all the servers and everything. And about two years into it, one of the servers came over to me and said, hey, Mr. Anthony, uh, I need your help on something. I said, sure, what is it? And he had come into, unfortunately, there was a tragedy in his family, but he had come into a $35 million settlement. This is like 20 years ago. Uh, so that's you know a lot of money even back then, even today. But anyway, the point being the server turned out to be the best prospect in the room, despite all the meetings that I was having. So, um, but you know, I grew up in a blue collar middle-class family. My mom and dad, uh, Never went to college. My grandmother is obviously an immigrant from uh, Italy, as were my other grandparents. But, you know, my grandmother was a maid. And then she went on to become a laundress, a hostess laundry here in, in Port Washington. And, you know, it was a big day for me. I can still remember it. I was eight years old when the washer and dryer were being delivered into my mom and dad's unfinished basement. And they thought it was the greatest thing ever. My grandmother thought it was the greatest thing ever. I didn't understand it at that time. Um, but that's sort of the family I grew up in. So my thing is you got to take care of everybody. Um, I never leave a hotel room without dropping some money because, you know, the person could be somebody's grandmother. And so at the end of the day, is it really going to matter if it's in my pocket? You know, I can give it to somebody else where it may really matter to them. And I think it's an important way to think about life. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I do think it's an important way to think about life. And you mentioned, um, you know, coming from more of a blue collar background. Um, what was it that made you um, get interested in finance? I know you went to law school, but what was kind of the genesis for you for um, kind of wanting to pursue this career path? Well, I don't want to sound so shallow, but I'm actually quite shallow. So let me just tell you what happened to me. I needed money. You know, my parents were tight, fiscally tight. The budget was always tight. My dad's hourly wages were variable. And so unfortunately, uh, during recessionary times, uh, the money was really tight. And so, you know, I had uh, anything from a paper route. Um, I had 
I was a store clerk at a key food in our local town. I worked at my uncle's motorcycle shop. I was washing cars on the weekends. Uh, and I was giving a lot of that money to my parents just to try to help them. So I was always monetarily focused. I went to law school because a pretty shallow reason. They were paying uh, starting salaries at law firms $65,000 a year in the mid 80s. My dad was probably making like $32,000, $33,000 a year at the time. I was like, oh my God, that's like double what my dad's making. And, you know, it'll be my first year out. So I'm going to go to law school. It was not a lot of clinical uh, or analytical thinking beyond that. Uh, when I got to law school, I absolutely hated it. I mean, I only really learned two things in law school. One was not to be a lawyer. And then the second thing was to avoid lawsuits because the only people that live, win a lawsuit are lawyers. So um, I was there searching for an alternative career. I met some people from Goldman Sachs um, and it seemed like the culture fit what I wanted to do. And I applied to get a job there. Uh, I did get that job. And then, you know, of course I got fired. I got my ass fired from that that job, which uh, sucked actually, you know. So when I got fired from the White House, that sucked. I mean, that was really bad, by the way. But getting fired at age 27 with $125,000 of school debt from Goldman Sachs after 18 months, that also sucked. So, uh, but, you know, listen, the point being is that you can survive those things. You can go on and thrive. Um, I like telling those stories because uh, hopefully it'll open the eyes of some kids that are trying to make their way. You know, I mean, one of the things I love about Pomp, frankly, uh, Pomp's followers and, you know, obviously your followers as well are younger kids trying to make their way, trying to learn from people, listening to podcasts, videos, and things like that. Um, I could tell people I went to Tufts and Harvard Law School and then on to Goldman Sachs and built two successful hedge funds. I could tell them that, or I could tell them the truth. You know, I was wearing polyester at my first job interview and the guy's looking at me like, man, you know, you're the, like the worst dressed person that we've ever met from the Harvard Law School. That's the truth, you know, and I can tell people that I actually sucked at my first job at Goldman, got fired. Uh, luckily, I got rehired in Goldman, but, you know, that was a brutal period of time. Um, since you mentioned law school, I failed the bar twice. Uh, a lot of people don't like talking about this sort of stuff, but first time I failed it, I was in, uh, I was water skiing in Manhasset Bay. Uh, my buddies from law school were studying, and I made the decision that I wasn't going to study, sort of the grasshopper and the ant, very arrogant decision. I'm like, you know, I've never gotten a, a 66 on an exam in my life. I, of course, I'm going to pass this. I failed it by one multiple choice question. I got a 65.6 on the exam, if you could believe that. And New York State does not round up. And so I ended up failing. Uh, I took it again. I didn't study for it. I failed it again. And then I had to take two weeks off from Goldman Sachs and a 12-week intensive bar class. Uh, and I went back and passed it. So why did I do that? Well, I like being a finisher in life. I tell young people, if you start something, try to finish it. Um, you know, And I wanted to make sure I completed that task. I also think it sends a message to people about resilience and persistence if you stay in something. Um, you know, 2008, I had buddies of mine from Goldman come visit me. Uh, they told me I should shut Skybridge down. Uh, I said, okay, tell me why. Well, you're losing money, you're getting redemptions and blah, blah, blah. So we went on to build the uh, SALT conference and we bought Citibank's fund of funds business and their alternative ma management, asset management division. 
uh, and we went on to grow the firm. You know, we're getting our asses kicked right now. Um, one of the more fun days for me, frankly, was you coming to my office on what was the 15th anniversary of Skybridge. I don't know if you remember. That was the last time we were in person. The last time we were in person, it was March of uh, 2020. Uh, We then had a celebratory party at the Monkey Bar that night. Uh, The Monkey Bar was closed. People probably got COVID at that party, which I apologize for. We didn't really know what was happening at the time. Um, but if you said to me on the day that you and I were celebrating, or at least I was celebrating, you were interviewing me at the 15th anniversary of Skybridge, if you would have told me uh, we would have been rocked in April, that March of that year would have been the worst. You know, while you were interviewing me, we were up on the month. By the end of the month, we were down 25%. It was literally the worst year. The month of March, Jewel was the mm-hmm. worst year yeah. in my investment career, the month of March. And so there I was, and then we tried to rebuild the firm. Obviously, we pivoted into crypto. Uh, my first uh, pomp interview on his podcast, we were talking about crypto, and we were talking about, well, well, Mooch, why are you not in crypto? I'm like, well, I'm doing my homework. You know, I'm getting close. We pulled the trigger uh, in October of 2020. But, you know, my point, why am I making this very long-winded point? My point is you go through ups and downs. You go through lots of career uncertainty. Don't take yourself that seriously. Get your ass up in the morning, dust yourself off, and go forward. Uh, and certainly try to do that after my White House firing. Yeah, there's a lot in there. And I and I love the lessons. Like, you are relentless. You're not afraid of failure. And you, like you said, you get back up and get back in there. Um Another- why would you be, let, let's address that just if you don't mind for 30 seconds, why would somebody be afraid? What did, what did Steve Jobs say in his Stanford commencement? You're going to die. We, we know the answer, okay? You know how the thing's going to end. You know how the story's going to end. You're dead. That's yeah. how the story ends. So why are we not taking risks and doing the things that we want to do in life? And so what is it? Some of it is our upbringing. Some of it is our fear of failure. Some of it is the feelings that other people have about us, okay? And, oh, my God, I don't want other people to think I'm a failure. You know, I don't give a fuck. I mean, are we allowed yeah. to curse on this podcast? Okay. You can, yeah, it's on the internet. It's fine. Yeah, sorry. My I mean, mom listens, but that's okay. All right. Tell you, your mother I'm sorry. And Mrs. Lurch, I'm sorry. You know, I have a tendency sometimes to go, got fired for cursing, by the way, which was one of my legendary lines about <laughs> that, Steve. You Benton, did get fired Which, for of cursing. course, he turned out to be the most malevolent human being on planet Earth, which I obviously knew and identified but that's a whole other story but but i'm just i'm just saying that like why, why take it so seriously get, get up let's get going make the best out of it that you can make out of it don't take yourself that seriously and when you're getting beaten up you know you got to laugh a little you know i mean what, what, what are we going to do we're going to sit here and cry mm-hmm. well like you always say um and i forget who you quote you say none of us are getting out of here alive i've heard you say mel brooks mel brooks there you mel go brooks, re- relax none of us are getting out of here alive exactly. i mean you know we know that how the story ends and i think you're kind of touching on i wonder if it's like the f- the fear is it rooted in the psychology of maybe we're thinking about what everybody else thinks about us but the truth is they're really not and that's why i think it's important to share these stories with folks um so they can kind of see like hey it's not the end of the world you can bounce back from um these, I don't know if you want to call them failures. I don't setbacks. We call them setbacks, not failures. Well, well, yeah, but they are. I mean, look, you can call them whatever you want, failures, setbacks, whatever they might be. You know, I like to think of Elon Musk 
in this following context. He was on the verge of bankruptcy. He had funded SpaceX and Tesla, and he was going into the 2008 crisis on the verge of bankruptcy. And he stayed with it. He hung in there. And now he's the richest person in the world. And so to take those sorts of risks, it could go the other way. And, you know, by the way, Elon Musk would have been totally fine if it went the other way. Maybe he wouldn't be the richest person in the world, but he would still be extraordinarily successful. And I think what you have to recognize is that some of this is luck. You know, if you and I are playing Monopoly and we have, you know, like, you know, the uh, the street rules where if you roll a double, you get to roll again. If I come out of the block and I roll six straight doubles, you mathematically, you're not going to beat me. Okay. I'm going to control too much property on the board and a result of which you're not going to beat me. Okay. So what do we know? Some of that is luck. I could be the best monopoly strategist in the world. You come out of the blocks and roll six straight doubles and start landing on properties and start taking up property. I'm out. So part of life is luck. Part of life is timing. Part of life is persistence. But the greatest joy that you're going to get is in terms of how you can control your mind in terms of how you're handling everything. Okay. So when great things are happening to me, I'm also tempered. I can remember 2014, I think we raised $3 billion, Jewel. And people in my office are, oh, this is the greatest thing ever. I'm like, yeah, it's the greatest thing ever until it's not the greatest thing ever. Take a chill because something bad will happen. And, you know, I mean, you know, and that's what happens. By the way, we had a strong buy on at Morgan Stanley at the top. Of course, when we went down, they put a strong sell on. Then we rallied back. They put a strong buy on at the top. And now, of course, they have a sell on us again. So, I mean, it's just like, all right, guys. I mean, don't you learn from anything that's probably be, should be doing the opposite of that? Yeah. Um, another important thing we should bring up is, uh, this is just something I've noticed about you, is that you are incredible at relationship building. And I, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone quite like it when it comes to building relationships. Um, and even like, gosh, you even had moments where, Maybe you didn't necessarily get along with someone, but you even on the way out, the way you treat people um, or even rekindle a relationship. Talk to me about your approach to building relationships and maybe some of the lessons younger folks can learn from that. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is um, I, I try not to be overly judgmental because I certainly don't want to be judged. Um, my grandmother had a great line in Italian. Um, I'll translate it into English. I'm probably not going to do it as much service, but... My grandmother used to say the best among us choose not to judge human frailty so harshly, meaning we're all flawed, we're all human, we're all frail, we're all living with the same human condition. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be so judgmental. And so, you know, General Kelly fired me. His first official act was to fire me from the White House. Uh, 9.20 in the morning, I got fired. Um, I shook his hand, I walked out the door, and I went on. He was sore at me, I was sore at him, whatever. Uh, but when he left the White House, I called him, and I invited him to the SALT conference, and I invited him to lunch. Why did I do that? Because he's an amazing American. He's a four-star general. He's a gold star family member. He lost his son in Iraq, which is a terrible tragedy. Uh, and he's actually a great human being being an American patriot. So what am I going to do? We're going to be sore at each other because he fired me. Uh, he made a decision that that was the best thing to do for the White House. 
at that time. I respected the decision. I never blamed him or even President Trump for my firing. I took responsibility for my firing. But I think it was very important for me to rekindle, rebuild that relationship. We now are personal friends and we have uh, gone on speaking engagements around the world uh, together. Um, and so what are the lessons there? Don't bear a grudge. Number two, work on yourself, making yourself better and see the best in other people. You don't have to be so judgmental. Now, when I say all this, people say to me, well, what about President Trump? Could you ever make peace with President Trump? And the answer to that is, yeah, but he would have to be a man. Okay, He would have to apologize to my wife, Deirdre, for attacking her on the presidential Twitter feed. You know, I gave the guy a million dollars of my personal money, went out and campaigned for him. Uh, he fired me from the White House. No problem with any of that. But once he attacked my wife on Twitter, you know, then it becomes personal. And then I, I you know, I have to, you know, I have to do the right thing. I'm not Ted Cruz. I'm not going to sit there and take take that stuff from somebody like him. But but if he did apologize, then it would be fine. I would move on. No yeah. big deal. Yeah, it becomes you know, personal. My, yeah, but you can't. But if, you can't be a, a doormat for people. You know, like like that's another thing, though. I just said treat people with kindness, accept frailty, but you can't be a doormat for somebody. You got to have respect and self-respect for yourself. Someone's coming after you, drag them into the street. Yeah. You know, I mean, Anderson Cooper was like, oh, you're having a bar fight with Trump. I'm like, I'm having a bar fight. Trump has never been in a bar fight. Trust me. This guy wouldn't know how to handle a bar fight if his life depended on it. Okay. So, so my, my point is, by the way, the, the pomps, they know how to handle bar fights. Okay. Trust me. Okay. I, you just take a look. Okay. I've been in plenty of bar fights. My point is, you're coming after me, be prepared to fight because I know how to fight. But if you're not coming after me, uh, I want to get along with everybody and I want peace, you know, but you have to have that also in your personality. You can't be a doormat. You know, and you, you know, you know this, Julie, you don't need yeah. me to tell you. You know yeah. this. Um, okay, so I want to kind of shift and talk a bit about business. And let's kind of start um, with your overall views of the economy. What is kind of like your macro view right now? Well, I mean, short term, it's, it has to be pessimistic. I mean, the, the Fed is likely to raise rates, uh, will create a slowdown in growth. They'll probably crack the economy. Uh, I think people are 50-50 on a recession, whether or not there'll be a recession. I sort of feel like we're in one already. Um, you know, we can measure these things in different ways. So, you know, that's what the old joke is. There are lies and there are damn lies and then there are statistics. So we, we, you know, we can measure them and pretend we're not in a recession, but I sort of feel like we are. Uh, it'll be a shallow recession, in my opinion, because there's a lot of savings. People have saved a lot of money. There's a lot of pent up demand because of what happened during the pandemic. People want to get out there and start traveling more and be more in a period of normalcy. All that stuff, I think, will return. Uh, but here's the question. If you have a short-term time frame, you're going to get annihilated. If you have a long-term time frame, you're going to take advantage of this and make a ton of money for yourself. You know, this is the time to be buying. This is the time to be doing strategic things. Um, I have made my money in times like this. You know, I bought the Citibank business right after the global financial crisis. Uh, looked to see Skybridge do something very strategic and very bold here over the next six to 12 months. Why? Because, you know, that, that the, the, weak, the market weakness is creating that opportunity. So, you know, people that are listening, dollar cost average into the markets. And so if you're a Bitcoin buyer, I 
proud to tell you that I bought Bitcoin at 64,000, but I'm also proud to tell you that I bought it at 18,000. And so, and I bought it all over the place over that because I'm buying it regularly. And I would tell people that's how you have to think about things, you know, and if you do that, you're going to have a great investment career. If you get nervous and you over listen to people at the bottom, you will sell your stuff at the bottom uh, because you think that you're going bankrupt and the world's coming to an end. And so you will do that. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, you'll be rushing in to buy at the top because you're like, oh, my God, I just missed this. And my friends are in it. Why didn't I buy it? You know, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, a lot of things um, I want to follow on there. There are a few things I want to bring up, but you mentioned like these are the environments where you've made your money. Um, you you started the Salt Conference, which for folks who aren't who aren't familiar, the Salt Conference is like the preeminent. Um, well, it's broader than hedge funds now, but when I was going earlier, it was uh, more focused on hedge funds, but it certainly broadened out to cryptocurrencies, fintech. You have politicians who come. It, it's an incredible conference, um, and I will be going uh, later this month. But yeah, so when you you're, you make these kind of bets. Uh, maybe folks are saying, no, it's a terrible idea. It's a bad idea. But it kind of brings up this idea of, you know, sticking to your conviction. Uh, how do you kind of think about um, making these sorts of bolder moves during uh, more turbulent times? Well, you know, the Salt Conference, I thought Skybridge was going out of business. And so I thought I was going to end up as a third party marketer for hedge funds. And so when all of the major banks canceled their conferences in Las Vegas, I was like, okay, there's a huge opportunity there. We were buying rooms from, I think, the Encore Hotel, which is adjacent to the Wynn, for $99 a night. And so we got the conference started. Uh, then we got bold with it. We started inviting people like President Clinton, Governor Romney, et cetera. And then it started to mushroom into what it is today. But here's another thing I would say to you. I didn't expect that to happen. I didn't know that that was going to happen. Uh, but that's what good entrepreneurs do. Entrepreneurs are building the airplane as a descending off of a cliff. Uh, and, and that's what we were doing there. Um, we have, you know, I'm a big believer in mixing up the editorial content, though. You know, Meet the Press got started in 1947. It's the oldest news show. NBC says that. I was on Meet the Press, said that on the wall. So I'll take that as fact. Um, but why did that last? Why is Seinfeld off the air or Friends off the air or Happy Days if you're my era of person? Uh, it's off the air because uh, you run out of a story. The storyline is over. You run out of plots and it gets a little boring and it trends down. Meet the Press is like a kaleidoscope. You can constantly change the lens pursuant to what's happening in the society. And so we've tried to do that with salt. You know, we were very heavy uh, hedge fund focused uh, 10 years ago. We're now mixed up with hedge funds, VCs, cryptocurrency investors, cryptocurrency brokers. Um, we've got a whole thing going on now on streaming. Um, everybody seems like in Hollywood now has a streaming company. Where is the future of streaming? Where are we going to take that? Uh, I want to talk about that as well. We've got national security things happening uh, that we're, we're, we're going to be addressing. So, so to me, I'm trying to look at what's going on in the world today and say, okay, if I needed to take two days off, two and a half days off, and I wanted to learn about something contemporary, what is going on today, what would I do? That's how we reverse engineer and build back up the salt comp. Yeah, and that's a great way of uh, putting an agenda together. Um, 
I guess to that point, like, what is the one thing like right now that you, if you had to narrow it down to of the big universe of things um, that you want to learn more about um, as it relates to like the, I guess the broader landscape out there? Wow, that's a good question. So uh, we've spent some time in um, the biotech world in longevity. Uh, we spent some time in sort of what I call the new age agriculture. You know, my my son, AJ, who I believe that you've met, um, he started a company uh, called Board Cow. They have this uh, enzymatic reaction that turns plant into animal protein. And so if you think about it, that's exactly what a cow does. A cow eats the plants because it's a herbivore and then it has becomes an animal and, and creates milk, right? So how do you do that process without the cow? Uh, my son started this business called Board Cow. Uh, it's basically a, a milk product, uh, which is selling very briskly right now. Uh, but it's a milk product without the cloud. It's a plant-based milk product. And so we're learning about that. Uh, how we're going to use this type of technology to help reduce carbon admission. I mean, there's a lot of traditional money managers, I would put myself in that category, that are probably not as well versed in what's going on, where the future is going. And so I'm trying to create programming related to that. Um, I would say to you that uh, uh, Professor Loeb from Harvard uh, is coming to talk about what he believes was a interesting discovery, an interstellar object entering our solar system a few years ago. Uh, he's a professor of, of astronomy at Harvard. He obviously believes in alien life. Um, there's a lot of discussion about these unidentified aerial objects, whatever they're calling them. We used to call them UFOs when I'm a kid. They're called UATPs or something. I don't know what they're called now. But we, you know, our Navy pilots are observing these things. What are they exactly? So we have a big discussion coming about that. Um, so yeah, so to me, it's a blend of things. It's investments, policy, national security, geopolitics, but you know, also some, some people from the entertainment world as well. Yeah, no, I will definitely want to go to that, uh, that talk because that is something that definitely piques my interest. Um, okay, so going back to investing, I want to talk about Bitcoin. Um, you wrote a whole book on this. Um, Talk to me about your thesis around Bitcoin. So, you know, listen, I, I think Bitcoin to me, the first real cryptocurrency on the blockchain, I think it was important to try to describe it to my clients. You know, I'm, a, uh, you know, I'm getting old. Okay, I'm turning 59 uh, in January. And so I'm sitting here as a 34-year veteran of uh, Wall Street my contemporaries uh, don't understand Bitcoin by and large. They don't like it and they don't understand it. Uh, you know, people older than me, like Warren Buffett, they think it's venereal disease or, or rat poison Munger, squared. Rat poison. I think Charlie Munger said it was the worst thing that ever happened to the civilization, something crazy like that. So, so a lot of people don't understand it. And that usually does happen. There is great resistance to new technology. Okay. Uh, there were many people that were in horses and carriages that thought the horseless carriage movement was a fad. Uh, there were many people that said, why do I need this quote unquote telephone? What would be the benefit of that? Uh, Bill Gates himself uh, said that the internet was a fad. He said that in the mid nineties, of course, he's one of the smartest people on the planet. So he very quickly corrected himself and built a very exciting internet business. My, my point being is we don't know. We're out there trying to figure things out. But for me, I think the blockchain, the innovation known as Bitcoin 
is a game-changing asset for the world. And to really not to get too boring, you know, because I don't want to give you the whole book, it'd be too boring, but just think of it this way. Um, all money really is, is a technology that we're using between each other so we don't have to barter. Uh, and But what if that money couldn't be corrupted? What if the money couldn't be additionally printed or electronically created? What if the ledger, the assets and liabilities associated with that ledger were concretized and they were frankly decentralized so that they were pure and they really couldn't be tainted? Uh, and that's what Bitcoin represents. And of course, the blockchain represents an ability to transfer that value anonymously or transfer that value without permission from third parties. And so uh, if you were riding in an elevator with me and you said, well, what is Bitcoin and the blockchain? I said, listen, it's a masterpiece. It is a technological masterpiece. And it's a wonderful delayering mechanism for an economy. And so ultimately, we'll be able to take out third parties, middlemen and middle women from transactions as a result of the blockchain and cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And so my, my, my point about Bitcoin, it's the oldest of them. Uh, it has the highest market cap. Uh, and I do think that it will be around for a very long time. And of course, these uh, layer two technologies, the Lightning Network, uh, which is batching Bitcoin transactions and making them cheaper and moving the transactions faster, I think will uh, create long-term lots of growth, lots of innovation economically uh, for the world. And you know, so that's my piece on Bitcoin. Yeah. And you know, it's important too. like you used to be a skeptic. You admit this, that you used to be a skeptic on cryptocurrencies. Um, what was it that made you change your mind? So like Bill Gates said that he thought this was a fad. I was like, this thing's like a bunch of bullshit. I mean, what the hell? Would what is this? I think I said something ridiculously stupid about it in 2012. Uh, caveat mTOR. I don't know anything about Bitcoin and I don't care. Um, it's just a sign of my uh, personal ignorance, which, uh, uh, you know, but here's the thing. Um, when you get something wrong, admit that you got it wrong and change your point of view as you learn more. Be intellectually curious. Don't be closed minded. Uh, I can't tell you the number of people that were negative on Bitcoin that I have talked to uh, that have changed their mind. You know, Anthony Pompliano, by the way, uh, I would give him a lot of credit in terms of helping me understand Bitcoin better than I originally understood it, you know? And so I would say the uh, Winklevoss brothers, Mike Novogratz, uh, a contemporary of mine from Goldman and a friend, all of these guys were very helpful to me on my odyssey into the cryptocurrency space. So so learn, be open-minded. But yes, I, I had a negative view of it. My knee-jerk reaction is similar. And by the way, I see lots of my contemporaries when I talk to them about it, they have the same knee-jerk reaction that I had 10 years ago. And I say, yeah, yeah, I thought I thought that way. But I think if you do more homework on it, you'll realize that it's here to stay. Yeah. How about with the sell-off in Bitcoin? Because you mentioned like um, that you were proud that you had it. I forgot the number. I, it was in the 60,000 plus range. And then also that you bought it when it was in the, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe it was like 14 or 16,000. I, I forgot what you said at the yeah. top of this, that you're proud of Bitcoin. Yeah, you have a good memory. My first Bitcoin was, I think, at 16,000. I think my weighted average cost was like 18,500. I did buy some Bitcoin in the 60s. Uh, we had an over a billion dollars worth of uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency assets at the peak. Uh, we probably have about five or $600 million now. And then you say to say, well, the market, the overall market's down about 55 to 60%. Bitcoin's down 50. 
So you must have added to your Bitcoin. And the uh, short answer is yes. As new capital comes into the farm, uh, we have added to Bitcoin. Um, and so, uh, and we bought Bitcoin in the, in the recent weakness. I bought some Bitcoin in, uh, after the grayscale Bitcoin trust was denied by the SEC. We bought some. And so, yeah, so we're, we're, we're holders, we're owners. Um, where, where will Bitcoin be? I can't figure that out. Obviously, I've gotten that wrong in the short term. I, I said it would be over $100,000. I didn't anticipate the magnitude of the pandemic or the war in Ukraine um, or the inflation disaster inducted by the Fed. I, did, I probably, you know, I probably didn't see all of the variable externalities that would affect prices. Uh, you also had something in those markets, which I think uh, people my age know, you know, there are no new mistakes. You literally had fraud and leverage in those markets. It's like if uh, Bernie Madoff and John Merriweather from long-term capital management, if they got together and had a baby, they'd name it three arrows. I mean, that was like leverage plus fraud. And so that also created and contributed to the collapse in the markets. But, but listen, you know, that 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 happens. That happened in 2000 in Web One in the Nasdaq markets. Uh, just briefly, if you were a participant in the Nasdaq bubble burst of March of 2000, you could have gone and said, "I will never buy a technology stock again. I've been burnt." Or you could say, "Okay, this is a huge buying opportunity." The people that did the latter. Uh, they took advantage of a generational investing opportunity. The people that missed it, I have a lot of friends that missed things like Amazon and Google because they felt burnt in 2000. Those people, they missed a 25-year, 22-year generational opportunity, arguably the best investment in U.S. economic history technology. So I don't want people, despite the bubble bursting, Bitcoin being below 20,000 again, I don't want people to lose sight of that. I want them to be long-term. Do you think, um, I don't know, do you think it's like a, a bit of a healthy thing, like what's playing out right now? Like more of a washout in the space? Like how do you kind of assess? Um, well, it's probably bad for me health-wise when I look at my portfolio. But yes, I do think it's a healthy thing, meaning that, you know, these washouts, uh, these cleansings, if you will, have a tendency to make people better, sharper, more efficient, you know? You know, you know, here's what happens. Oh, we're in a recession. Okay, I got to tighten the belt. Maybe lay off some people, watch expenses. And then all of a sudden you start growing again and growing and growing. And then you start spending, you know, and then you do that again. And so it's a little bit of a cycle. Gotcha. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm always cautious about our real estate because when we're doing well, we want more space and we're doing less well, we want less space. And I got to try to take the mama bear approach and just say, okay, everybody relax. We'll do, we'll put more people in this space. And if the world comes to an end and people need to leave the firm, we'll operate in this environment. But I just, my point is, you know, you know, all businesses, you know, they grow, sometimes they sputter and sometimes they grow. Lots of these technology companies are, have grown more or less in a straight line, but in, on wall street, we have a tendency to be more in a cyclical business than people really fully appreciate. So I always try to be a little cautious. Yeah. How about, um, you know, during these times, like what, what kind of discussions do you have with investors? Like how do you kind of um, talk to them? Like when they see the price of Bitcoin 
kind of collapse? Like what, what are those conversations like? Well, I mean, they're emotional. You know, people are, are, are emotional with their money. You know, we learn in school that we're all rationalists, but we're not with our money. You know, people get very emotional. So um, people are upset with me. Why didn't you sell your the Bitcoin? You had it at 69,000. Why didn't you sell the entire thing and just buy it back here at 18,000? Uh, the short answer to that is I'm not smart enough to do that. Um, the longer answer is that this was a five-year bet on Bitcoin. We're in year two of a five-year bet. If we're right and Bitcoin's worth three hundred thousand uh, dollars, arguing over whether we bought it at sixty thousand or twenty thousand is going to be moot. Uh, if we're wrong, uh, you know, then you can hold my feet to the fire. But I think I have it sized appropriately so that if we're wrong, it's uh, it's not overly consequential. You know, embedded in our core portfolio are things like point seventy two, Steve Cohen, Millennium, is the Englander. Uh, Dan Loeb at third point. We have some great world-class money managers embedded inside the portfolio. So let's say that I'm wrong on Bitcoin. Uh, we're going to be fine. We're buffered by all of that. And so it's a mix of things. And I try to tell clients that calm down. Don't be in a rush to sell. You should be thinking about buying and adding to your portfolio. We're a 17 year old company. We're about to be 18 in March of next year. Uh, we're not going anywhere. I absolutely love what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I, you know, unless you know the good Lord takes me off the planet, I intend to be doing this for another 30 or 40 years. Everybody calm down. You know, my mentors, people I look up to are people like Alan Patrickoff started a his third or fourth business at age 85. Warren Buffett is 91. You know, Phil Carey lived to 101. Uh, Mario Gabelli, a close personal friend of mine, 82. I want to be in the game, locked in working uh, for a very long period of time, you have to take a long-term horizon on these markets. If you're not gonna take a long-term horizon on the markets, you are going to allow your emotions to sell you out of things too quickly. Uh, and I think that that's a big mistake. Yeah. And you know, we were, ta- we were talking about Bill Gates. Let me tell you one of my real stupid mistakes, if you don't mind. Yeah, tell me. I bought Microsoft at age 27. I mean, uh, just gotten rehired at Goldman Sachs. I said, okay, I'm going to put some money into Microsoft. I think I was putting, I don't know, $1,000 in every three months. I didn't have a lot of money back then. And then I put $10,000 in. And then I think I was making, as I started to make more money, maybe $50,000 a quarter investments in Microsoft. And I had this reasonably sized position as Microsoft did very well. And then during the bomber years, it sort of flatlined. You could look at the stock and it flatlined. Then it went down a little, and then it flatlined. People said, oh, well, that's dead money. That is a dead stock. And so what I did was I sold my Microsoft. I had a large gain in my Microsoft because I owned it for 20 years, paid the taxes, and I reinvested it in a smattering of things. Stupid. All I had to do was stay in the Microsoft and ignore it. And lo and behold, Microsoft being a world-class company, they figured out what they needed to do to grow again. And they created the cloud business and they went on to great success. I think I sold it, um, I think it's probably five or six to one from where I sold it. And so, yeah, it doesn't reflect well on me, uh, but that is a classic investment mistake. Uh, Had a 20-year hold on Microsoft, why not have a 30-year hold? That was my mistake. I have to own it for the rest of my life. But I want to uh, illustrate that for people. Why not just hold it? These are great companies. 
Uh, Bitcoin to me is dirt cheap. It's only got a market cap of $400 billion. Um, look at where Microsoft's market cap is, Facebook, et cetera. I think Bitcoin is more consequential. Those are great companies and they deserve their market caps. But I think Bitcoin is more consequential to the world than those companies and therefore should have a much higher market cap than those companies. And I believe that it will over time, but it doesn't right now. So what should I do? The market sentiment is negative. Should I sell it? Or should I sit tight and be patient? And I'm telling you that I don't want to make those mistakes that I've made at earlier parts of my career. Yeah. And that's like plays into it. You're talking about the long-term uh, horizon. And um, I, you mentioned that it's dirt cheap. Um, what is kind of like your big uh, picture uh price target for Bitcoin in the long run? And what do you think needs to happen for it to get there? You don't have to give it a timeline or anything, or maybe you want to. I, I don't know if you want well, to, but- Well, it's for more, you know, someone will say, well, it doesn't have any earnings, no dividends. Why do you think it's dirt cheap? I think it's dirt cheap because uh, I'm looking at use cases and applicability, and I'm looking at the shortage of Bitcoin relative to what will ultimately be a demand shock related to Bitcoin. So- so I, I think for all those reasons, it is a commodity. It's treated like a commodity. And it's a commodity that will be in high demand. And it's frankly very scarce. So therefore, the price should go up. Um, my long-term investment horizon is three to $500,000 a coin for Bitcoin. Uh, I think it gets there over the next five to 10 years. But I'm, I'm just saying we could be sitting here. Think about how quickly five years goes, Julia. Goes by so fast. Five years. Five years was 2017. I got my ass fired from the White House five years ago. Okay. So that five year period of time went by very quickly. Um, if Bitcoin is trading at 300,000 five years from now, uh, Bitcoiners like myself are not going to be surprised. I think the world, some people in the world will be. But, you know, why not just sit tight and just relax, you know? And let's say I'm wrong. Let's say it's 100,000. Still a five to one return from where we are right now. So, so to me, you know, I could be right and it will be very successful. I could be wrong. Okay. And let's say, you know, I'm wrong. It's going to be a smaller part of my portfolio, but I think it's sized appropriately. Yeah. Okay. So how do you, I've heard you talk about this before, but how do you think it ultimately disrupts like traditional financial services? I've heard you kind of give other analogies of other areas that have been disrupted by technology, but how do you mm -hmm. see it? As someone who's been in this space for so long, how do you see it disrupting? So I do think that it's going to disrupt the way we transact, whether we're going to the restaurant and we're paying directly to the waiter, uh, to the wallet of the restaurant, bypassing American Express and Visa, uh, well, if we're sending money, we're an expat uh, from El Salvador, sending money to mom and dad. We're going to bypass Western Union and save all those fees there. You may be in a situation where products, you know, remember Amazon is a third party provider. Amazon is a middle person, uh, you know, man or woman, but let's say person, middle corporation. If I do a transaction on Amazon, there's four parties involved. Right? Let's say I'm buying my right card. It's it's manufactured by Procter & Gamble. It's sold to Amazon. I then buy it from Amazon, but I'm using my Amex or my Visa card. So now you have four people in the transaction. You may come to a period of time because of the blockchain, the security of it, and you know people are comfortable with it. I send the money directly 
to Procter and Gamble and they hire a low cost fulfillment agent to send me back the product. And that all of a sudden two middle men or middle women are taken out of the equation. I may be able to go into Starbucks with a tokenized version of Starbucks stock on my phone and they're having a share of purchase. Maybe they'll give me a discount and I just, I, I uh, sleeve over to them, swipe over to them some of my tokenized Starbucks stock. See, the problem that we're having right now is that it's so early, we're having a hard time envisioning the future. Uh, 25 years ago, we couldn't do this Zoom call. Uh, 25 years ago, we couldn't stream 4K video, a billion people streaming 4K video over the over the internet. It took 35 seconds for my AOL landing page to land 25 years ago. But here we are 25 years later, 1997 to 2022, and look at all the applications, look at all the, the trillions of dollars of transactions that are happening over the internet. Look at the way we're able to use the internet to converse with each other. Uh, to me, I think that's where cryptocurrency is going over the next 25 years. We can't really fully envision how we're going to use all of this stuff. But what I can tell you is not only are we going to use it, it's going to replace things that we're currently using. Now, someone will say, what do you mean? You're going to replace the U.S. dollar? No, I think there'll be fiat currencies. I think you'll still have the U.S. dollar, but maybe it will help keep policymakers and politicians more honest. Maybe if you have harder currencies out there like Bitcoin, um, you'll have policymakers saying, okay, we've got to be less spendthrifty. We have to be less of a manufacturer of these dollars. You know, you know, you know and I know we're not we're not stupid, right? You know, I mean, let me just show you this book. I just finished Yeah, I, you're such a voracious reader. Please show it. You know, yeah. You're, you know, you're 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 not stupid. You know, Safadin is explaining how fiat currencies have worked over the last 5,000 years, how they get weakened by the government as the government doesn't want to make hard choices. If I don't want to make hard choices, I print more money. And that will temporarily solve the problem, but then it creates an additional set of problems. See what I mean? Yeah. And so, so you know, we're here now. Uh, hopefully the government will figure this out. It sounds like Jerome Powell wants to do that. I think his speech was actually thoughtful and a good speech. My portfolio suffered as a result of Jerome's Powell speech last week, but I think long-term he's directionally right. And I think we'll be, we'll be made better as a result of that. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I want I want to bring up politics with you. You're probably mm -hmm. used to talking about it. Um, you know, given five years ago um, your brief stint in the White House and um, the situation involving former President Trump and Mar-a-Lago, and what do you make of it? What is kind of your view, or how do you assess um, recent so, events? I mean, I, I think it's just really simple questions. Okay. Mr. President, why did you take those documents out of the White House? What was the purpose of that? And then secondarily, the second question is, Mr. President, who did you show the documents to? And so until we can get the answers to those two questions, I'm not exactly sure what the consequence will be directionally. But I think what's important for people to understand is he was asked to return those documents uh, ad nauseum. Uh, he refused to do that. Um, we do know, and again, I'm not, because I'm not close enough to it, but we do know that a lot of human intelligence was in those documents that are in Mar-a-Lago. And we also know 
that we lost more human intelligent resources over the last 18 months that we set the record of those deaths. Now, let's give the president the benefit of the doubt that he was just keeping that stuff so he could brag to people that he had it. Maybe that's part of his uh, personal insecurities. Um, but suppose it wasn't. Suppose he offered up those documents or he offered other people to see it. Or even in his naivete, uh, people that are adversaries in the United States knew that those documents were there um, and they figured out ways to access them even without him knowing. It doesn't really matter. What he did was 100% wrong. And so now the question is, what will be the reaction to what it is that he did? And unfortunately, uh, because he's a political figure, I think the U.S. government is being very cautious about that. Um, I don't think we want to be the country that jails its former political figures. But flip side is, if your political figure is a mendacious criminal, uh, then you don't really have a choice. You're going to have to uh, uh, put him in jail. Will he go to jail? My guess is no. Um, will there be significant, serious consequences from what he did? Um, I think they're going to surprise people with that. I think they'll be more serious than people are currently suggesting. So, you know, is his political career over? That I don't know. Um, you know, we'll have to see. I, I think he will run for the presidency again if he's able to. Um, I think he'll give the Republicans a very hard time if he's running. Um, he'll likely get the nomination if he's running. Um, and I think he would probably be the one person that all the Democrats could beat. You know, maybe Kamala Harris couldn't beat him, but I think most of the Democrats could beat him. Uh, be primarily because his hate numbers are through the roof. You know, yes, he has a strong group of people that like him, but he does have a very large group of people that hate him that would stop everything they're doing to go out and vote against him. And so so we'll have to see what happens. But my guess is, is that he's in trouble. And I think he realizes that he's in trouble. And But the real question is, why, well, why did you do that, sir? What, what are the reasons for why you did that? It's obviously wrong. And you don't, there's no justification for it. And you, the nonsense that you declassified it is BS because, of course, there's a process declassifying it. So we'll have to see. But, but, um, what I'm disappointed in is my fellow Republicans that the fact that they have no backbone, uh, I'm disappointed that, uh, you know, he's going after Elena Chow and, uh, Mitch McConnell's like, okay, no problem. I have no comment. I mean, this guy's wife, you know, I'm disappointed about that. You know, go after the guy. You know, I'm disappointed that he was impeached twice and these Republicans didn't have the strength that Mitt Romney had to vote for his conviction. He broke the law. Uh, you know, let's get unlawful figures out of the party or out of politics. You know, I'm surprised that guys like Kevin McCarthy, um, they, they care more about wanting to be the Speaker of the House and political expediency than doing the right thing for the country or serving the people. So, you know. And I say I'm surprised. I say that a little bit sarcastically. Of course, I'm not surprised because, you know, I, I've experienced this in Washington. I understand how cynical these people are. And I understand that they're not really there to serve the people as much as they are there to preserve their own power uh, and to curry favor amongst each other. You know, so hopefully we can break that fever and we can get some good public servants in there uh, because the country needs help. The country needs a very good long-term plan uh, and a country needs people that are focused on wanting to serve the country and the people and not all the nonsense that's going on right now.
Are you worried about um, like the divisions in the country or are you more optimistic? What do you make of it? Well, I'm both. I'm worried about it because it's unnecessary. And I'm also worried about it because these politicians have decided this is the rocket fuel that they need to keep themselves perpetuating their own power base. So, yes, I am worried about it. Um, I'm optimistic about it because uh, the country has an uncanny flexibility to its culture. The country has a it's a it's a group of risk takers. Everyone that got here, their family members, themselves, their great grandfather, their grandfather, grandmother, whoever it is, they got here because they're risk takers. They left another situation that wasn't as good as this one. And they came here and they didn't know what was going to happen and they did the best they could. And so so to me, that type of people, that that group of people usually has a way of figuring things out. You know, I'm old enough to remember the 1970s and the quote unquote malaise and the malaise speech of Jimmy Carter. Uh, but by 1981-82, we were in a resurging, buoyant economy, and we had an America filled with optimism. Uh, and then, of course, we won the Cold War, and you had the 90s. Uh, President Clinton did a good job of being a great uh, executive during the 90s. We, we ended the 90s with a budget surplus. So if you were sitting there in 1979 and said, well, you know, by the year 2000, 21 short years later, we're going to be in a budget surplus and be in that position, you would have said no. Uh, you know, I think the 9-11 debacle and the push to fight those wars and the leakage from the treasury and the blood and treasure that was spent over there uh, has really hurt the country. I think it's impacted our image and our standing. And I think, frankly, President Trump, uh, the bellicosity of his rhetoric, the nasty approach towards our allies and, you know, currying favor of people like Vladimir Putin, I think it's hurt our standing around the world. So so we just need better, more thoughtful, long-term planning, better, more thoughtful leadership. But but I do think we're going to figure it out because not because just what we always do. So therefore, we're going to figure it out. There's something chemically interesting about this country uh, where we find ways to adapt. Uh, our culture finds ways to adapt. And so I'm very optimistic about that. I think that's a great note to end on, especially this kind of theme here we've touched upon about um, being focused on the long term. Well, Anthony Scaramucci, founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital. I thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Good to, it's good to have you back. You see, next time, maybe we should have me juxtaposed to my good friend, Sam Bankman-Fried, right? Because we, last time we were together was at his event. That's right. You know, I, I come in Brioni, he comes in Champion Actually, Short. You yeah. know what? You were the one who got me back into this chair because I was working at a tech startup. I don't know if you know that. And then I uh, got I to sit down with you. So thank you. I, I owe a lot to you. But I like your courage. I like the fact that you're fluid, you're neurally plastic, and you're willing to go with the flow. And, uh, and, you know, do what you love, Julia, yeah. do what you love, you know, God, God bless. And, uh, I wish you great success with the podcast and I want you to come on my podcast. I would love we... to. And, you know, I just want to quickly say thank you so much because you have truly given me advice throughout my career and, um, encouragement. And I just appreciate every conversation we've had. So I'm happy to come on your podcast. Same, same for me. Same to me. And I, I dressed up for you. Just so you know. I love it. All right. Well, have a great time at the fundraiser and uh, thank you for everything you do.